Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined as usual by Terry Fakes. And we are about to start round two of our difficult texts. And uh, if you've seen the title of this one and flipped open your Bible to this story, The Rich Man and Lazarus, you might be wondering off the bat, what is the difficult part of this story and of this parable? And uh, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do this one is there is a lot more in this story than meets the eye. It's one of those, like many parables, in fact, we're going to discuss later if this really is a parable or not, but like many parables, almost every time you read it, there's a new layer that opens up. And that's kind of the point of what Jesus did when he told these parables is they're like little time bombs that go off or a delayed release over time that you learn more and more. But the tricky thing about parables is knowing what meanings are the prime and best meaning and what aren't. So we're going to spend some time today talking generally about that and also about this specific parable. But uh, after one week of the difficult texts, and then, of course, we had Lance Ward last week on the podcast who did a wonderful job talking about caring for people in difficult Mm -hmm. seasons. I've gotten a lot of great feedback about these difficult passages. And in fact, we've gotten quite a few submissions. I think we're up to maybe eight or ten uh, submissions on difficult texts we're going to be doing. So if you have one in mind, uh, maybe on our list, it may not, but go ahead and send it in either on Facebook or uh, send us an email at info at so we speak.com, or you can comment on this podcast and we'll see it. But I'd really like to know what people think about these difficult texts and which ones they right. want to do. So we're, we've only done one. We did the angels and demons last time, which was kind of a big time one, but so far, uh, what are you thinking about this difficult text series? I I like it but not for the reason you might think, not because it's like, hey, it's a difficult text, resolve it. I like it because it helps you think biblically about thorny problems. And if you'll notice, our discussion branches out. It isn't just, well, I think this, I think that. It's as I read the scripture, here's the context I put around this. I think that process is helpful and Mm -hmm. it's most obvious in difficult passages. So I think it's worthwhile because it teaches us how to integrate everything else that you know about the scriptures. Right. I think for for So We Speak, one of our mottos is we want to think Christianly about the world. And -hmm. I think what we're doing in this series is we're learning to think biblically about the Bible, which is kind of using those biblical tools and using context and using text to interpret text. And that's really the fun of it because the goal isn't just that you would listen to this and say, oh, Cole and Terry can decipher this really difficult passage for me. It's by listening to this, hopefully you're thinking, oh, I, I knew that. I, I can apply this to that. And and right. it will enhance your reading of the scriptures. That's really the goal. Uh, right. Whether it's preaching and teaching a podcast like this, it's an equipping goal that you would read these texts and decipher them and study them and investigate them on your own. So I, I want to start today by just introducing this story. We're going to go through the story and then we're going to present three problem topics or three issues in this text Mm -hmm. that are are kind of interesting to dive into. And I'll just say at the outset, I've always really loved this rich man and Lazarus story. I think for a couple of reasons. One, it's in a string of parables in Luke that I think are really meaningful. And um, one of the other ones actually that comes right before this is also on our list the parable of the dishonest manager. And uh, the reason that that one is a difficult text is because the outcome seems almost contrary to the rest of what the gospels teach. So you're in this very interesting stretch in Luke, and uh, it contains the parable of the prodigal son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. These are teachings to the Pharisees. 
And this one is kind of the coup de grace of this string of parables, this section of teaching before the Pharisees. This is certainly the one that would have made them the most angry. The prodigal son would have made them really angry. But I right. almost wonder if this one made a, would have made them a little bit more angry because of the implication. I agree completely. And that's really astute because if you look at the context, you're right. Uh, just take out the uh, chapter uh, number 16 in here, and you see that really you're just going from parable to parable to parable, talking to the Pharisees. And at the end of this parable, 17, the audience changes. In 17, 1, it says, and he said to his disciples. So you have a change of scenery, so to speak. But I agree, this is the last in a line of several parables that would have been very convicting to the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about one of the keys to interpreting this parable is in chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, that's a big indicator that this is going to deal with that part of their hearts, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And uh, Jesus is going to come back at them with this parable later. This is right. a theme This is a theme in, in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this this story is unique to Luke, uh, which I think for a couple of reasons is interesting. You don't have any of the other gospel writers tell this story about the rich man and Lazarus. And of course, it makes you think of the end of the Gospel of John, where he says, you know, a lot of things have been written. And if you were going to try right. to write all of them down, the whole book, the whole world can contain the books that you would write about Jesus. But sometimes it is interesting what people decide to include and what people mm -hmm. don't among the gospel writers. Of course, we've talked about in our overviews that John is deciding what to include, probably based on knowing what was in the synoptics, or at least what was in uh, kind of a general overview of Jesus' life. And he wants to say a few other things and maybe draw out a few other points. But Luke does that as well. There's a theme of riches and poverty that run through Luke's gospel. And of course, this parable deals exactly with that topic. So it's not a surprise that he would include it, whereas maybe the others didn't, because they all had to keep some things and leave some other things out. But this is the only place you're going to read this story is in Luke chapter 16. And so it's in the context of talking to the Pharisees who loved money. And the way the parable opens is going to tee that up. So it starts in verse 19. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sore. So the, the, at the opening, you almost get caricatures of these two people. You have the rich man who's not named, he's clothed in purple and fine linen. In fact, that fine linen, one of the commentators notes that this word that's used for fine linen there is kind of an Egyptian linen imported. So he's he's not just clothed in kingly attire. He's wearing imported Egyptian underwear. Uh, this is a seriously <laughs> rich guy. And I don't know if there's a more pitiable character in the Gospels than Lazarus. Oh, I agree. By the way, when you see these extreme differences in a parable of Jesus. He's usually, it seems to me, doing this to presage a reversal. For example, if you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, you've got the priest goes by. He's well, he's a high, holy guy. But then who ends up helping Samaritan lowest of the low in terms of the spiritual ladder? Here you've got the rich man and you've got a guy who's so poor. I mean, this guy's 
poorest of the poor. And Jesus tends to want to set those things up for a reversal. And I think he does it for clarity. I think he does it to say, oh, everybody goes, oh, wow, I really see your point here. But yeah, the rich uh, Lazarus is sort of the quintessential poor guy. He's sick. He's helpless. And I don't know if this is intentional on Jesus' part, but the name Lazarus, as you know, Cole, is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eleazar. And Eleazar means a person whom God has helped. Uh, he who God, God is my helper. And you'd think, wow, this guy's misnamed. You know, right. he's, <laughs> and so it's it's funny that they're kind of things are turned upside down a little bit on several levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's significant. We're going to get into this later, why there's a name in this story. That actually is kind of one of the controversial parts of this. And you mm-hmm. take this name, Lazarus, and I, I do almost wonder if what's going on here is like a Pilgrim's Progress kind of thing right. where you have Christian and you have faithful and you know you you have people that are named for what they are. But a lot of times the way that Jesus talks about things is things are named for not what they are yet. And so we're going to see right. that reversal later. But yeah, it's kind of right. an obvious thing. Instead of thinking of his name as Lazarus, think of it more like, and there was a poor man who was called God is my help. And <laughs> yes, sets right. up the, the caricatures of the story. And then the dogs are licking his sores. I wonder if this is a little bit speculative. I mean, this is just part of the pitiable nature of this character. But I almost wonder if this is a reference to the Gentiles. A lot of times the Gentiles are referred to as Mm, dogs. Um, Even the dogs. It makes you think of the Syrophoenician woman who says even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. Right. Uh, I'm wondering if there's maybe just a little bit of an illusion here that he's he's so pitiable. He's he's like worse than a Gentile in some ways, insofar as he has been left on his own. Um, but anyway, he dies in verse 22, the poor man dies and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Of course, in the King James, this is Abraham's bosom, which we'll come back to. So the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, very odd. If you've seen the movie Hercules, your antenna are going up right now in Hades (laughs) being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out father Abraham. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. So this is the role reversal uh, that that we've been talking Mm -hmm. about. And there's some things that we'll come back to about this description of what's happening. What sticks out to you in these verses that we should notice? Well, other than the problem issues of whether or not this is real or this is part of the parable, but one thing that sticks out to me is the reversal. When you first hear Lazarus's name, you know, God is my helper, basically, you think, boy, that's ironic. And now you think, oh, no, actually, I see that God has made that name come true Mm -hmm. in a sense. And the rich man who was so important in life uh, has no name in this. And now he's one of numberless people 
who end up in Hades and are nameless, numberless people. Uh, mm-hmm. That reversal is is huge. Is thing here's instead of calling it reversal, I would put it simply like this: Throughout all the New Testament, certainly throughout the Gospel, you see that God's economy is not the same as ours, and things are not always the way they appear to be when you look mm-hmm. at it from God's perspective. That really jumps out at me here. Definitely. So in verse 26, he goes on, Abraham is is the one speaking here. He says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm is fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may uh, cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Kind of a cliffhanger into this parable with the the quality that's found in a lot of parables. You get to draw the conclusion. Right. There's an implication and you should you should develop your own takeaway. So uh, that's kind of the overview of the, of the story. It's really an easy story. You have a rich man, you have a poor man, and they die and their fortunes are reversed. And the poor man is begging Abraham to send Lazarus, to send the poor man who's now been elevated, to tell his relatives. Really, he wants a drink of water first, which is really sad when you start to think yeah. about this. This parable... Sometimes the way this parable is preached is almost kind of a triumphant preaching of this parable. This parable should be preached in sorrow for a couple of different reasons. For Mm -hmm. Lazarus's plight, for the torment of the rich man, and for the ignorance and lack of faith among the man's brothers. Uh, So anyway, he tells him to send Lazarus to give him a drink. Then he tells him that he needs him to go back to earth to the real world and tell his brothers uh, about what has happened to him. And Abraham gives him kind of a frank answer. No, mm-hmm. we're not going to do that because they have Abraham, they have Moses and the prophets. And um, he says, well, you know, that's all well and good. But, you know, if somebody came back from the dead, then that would really be what they needed to believe. And Abraham leaves us with that line at the end. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will Betty be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So let's start uh, to discuss some of the difficult parts of this text. I think some of them are kind of unfolding here. The first one is one people might not think of. This is a little bit more of an academic question, but it is interesting nonetheless. And that is, is this a parable or is this a real story? Now, why, why might people think one way or the other? Well, it's a good question, actually, because if you think about it, forget that it's called a parable for a second. A parable is usually not something that necessarily actually happened, but it's something that could happen. It may resemble something that happened. But for example, Jesus uses illustrations that really did happen. You know, he said at one point, do you remember when the tower fell on those uh, those people, those Jewish people, do you think you're more righteous than they are? He's actually referring to a specific event, mm-hmm. not a made up event in that case, to make a point, a story. He's telling a real event. So it's a fair question to say, get get it out of your mind that your Bible says the parable of Lazarus. Mm -hmm. You could ask and say, was there indeed a rich man and Lazarus? And Jesus is saying, and by the way, this is exactly what happened in that situation. 
uh, that's not my reading of this, but I think it's a fair question. What do you think about that? Some people bring up that it's not introduced as a parable. Uh, Of Mm -hmm. course, not all the parables are introduced as parables. Even in Luke 15 and 16, you kind of have an implication that these are parables. But for example, in the beginning of Luke 15, in verse 3, when he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, it says, so then he told them this parable. And he goes on and he tells the lost sheep and then the lost coin and the lost son. Here... Uh, he in 16 verse one and in 16 verse 19, he just says, and he said to his disciples in the first case, or we get no introduction in verse 19, there was a rich man. So you could read that as this actually is the case. This really was true. Mm -hmm. I don't think just because it doesn't say it's a parable means it's not a parable. Uh, However, the other thing that people think is, in parables, there's never anywhere else in the Bible an, a parable or that, that Jesus tells. I mean, there's never another parable where someone is named as a character. Right. And here you get two people named, uh, one of them a real person, as in Abraham, uh, and one of them being Lazarus, who, you know, we do know is a real person outside of this in the Gospel of John. We know about Lazarus. Uh, but is it that Lazarus, which is a, which is a question? And why are these people named? Whereas in the other parables, you don't have names; you just have these kind of everyman characters. Well, this is an opinion on my part, but here's how I read that, Cole. I'm assuming that Jesus is speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew, and this, of course, is written in Greek for various reasons. So there's nothing mysterious going on there. But if he's Speaking this in Aramaic, he isn't saying Lazarus, he's saying Eleazar. And of course, when you wrote it in Greek, you would say, oh, Lazarus, that is the Greek version of that name. So again, this is an opinion, but I think the reason that he names it, this character, is because Eleazar, God is my helper, is so startlingly wrong. It brings some cognitive dissonance to name this guy, God is my helper. But then a few sentences later, you go, aha, you can't always tell, but God was indeed his helper. That's my opinion, Cole, is I think that may be why he is named. I don't read into it. He is named because he was indeed a real person that Jesus is talking about. Again, that's an opinion. But what's your what's your thinking? I agree. I think it's it is an idealized telling. I don't think it is the real Lazarus. I'll expand on why I think that's the case in a minute because it goes with a couple of the other details in this parable. I do find it odd that it is the only one, but I don't think that mm-hmm. really means anything one way or the other. So it has the form of a parable in the sense that it has all the distinguishing marks of a of a parable story that Jesus would tell. It is a little bit more specific. It does have a name attached to it. I see no real compelling reason not to read it as a parable. Um, I almost wonder what would be the difference if it wasn't, if it was just a story. Now, if it's real, as we're going to talk about in the second difficulty, that would present some issues. If Jesus was relating it like the tower, he says, you remember the tower? He says, okay, you guys, I'm going to tell you something from beyond the grave. Here's what happened. That Mm -hmm. would be... That that would be uh, difficult to square, but I see no reason why it can't be a, a parable. So this leads us, though, to the second and I think more difficult issue, which is 
Is this a real depiction of the afterlife? How much of this parable should we believe is true about life after death? Uh, the situation that they're in, the way they communicate, I mean, all the things. There are some real issues here about what we should take away as a picture of the afterlife. Well, st as I start to think that through, here's my thought process. First, Jesus knows what the afterlife will look like. For example, if you remember when uh, the Sadducees are asking him about the man who has all these wives, or the woman has all these husbands and they die, you know, who's going to be married to her in the afterlife? And Jesus says, you don't understand. There won't be marrying or giving of marriage in heaven. And so you know that Jesus knows about the afterlife. So that is at least, it could be that he's telling you that. Secondly, Jesus has spoken before about heaven and hell. He's spoken of hell in a sense of those who are condemned, those who don't believe are in hell, and that's torment. And so that part is consistent. But nowhere else have I ever seen the idea that people in hell could see people in heaven, people in heaven could see people in hell, and that they could talk to each other. So at that point, I start to think, well, maybe that is there for purposes of this story rather than an actual description of what people in hell and people in heaven can see. But I understand why this could be a difficult question, but mm -hmm. I don't tend to read that part as necessarily true, even though I admit that everything that led up to it is, I believe, probably true about the afterlife. There certainly is a heaven and a hell, and Jesus certainly knows what it's like. Yeah, the implications of a couple of these details would be very hard to work out. Number one, like you said, can people in hell see the people in heaven and talk to them? Are we going to be being right. heckled, you know, if we're in one place <laughs> or the other by the people that are across this chasm? You know, is there going to be yelling right. back and forth between the two groups? Um, is there the ability, the other thing that's kind of startling is, is there the ability for someone who's in one of these places to go back and talk to people that are on the earth? Now, you do right. have some indication that maybe this happens. You have Saul who goes to the witch at Endor and brings back Samuel. Uh, that's kind of a weird scene. Maybe we should right. put that on the list of difficult texts. But outside of that, it would be kind of odd, I think, against the rest of what the Bible says for a person to come back from the realm of the dead to talk to people who are uh, living now. Um, again, Jesus does this. There are zombies, effectively, that are raised when the tombs are open mm -hmm. after the resurrection or after the uh, crucifixion. I don't know if they're talking to people about what they've seen, but this is this is uh, this is even different than some of these books you have now with the heaven is for real and ninety minutes in mm -hmm. heaven kind of thing, where a person dies but they see heaven and then they come back. This is really like a dead person coming back as a spirit almost and telling people things about the other side. That that seems like it would be difficult to work out if it were true. Yeah, I uh, to me, I have a definite opinion about this. I think everything is true about the afterlife in terms of the existence of heaven and hell, the judgment that sends some people one place and the other. But I really think it's not so difficult to realize that everything that comes after that is for the point of the story, because we do that too. And it's not that hard for us to understand the difficulty between setting up the story with real life things 
and then you jump into a hypothetical to make your point. We do that all the time. Like I might start a story that says, I was driving down the Hefner Parkway the other day, and you know where all that construction is? Yeah, it's horrible construction. Well, I was caught up in construction. Now, all that's true. And then a crazy thing happens. Guy gets out of the car. We start talking. And you go, okay, I realize you have just now, you've gone on to your joke or Mm -hmm. you moved on to your story, but you set it up with true things. But at this point, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody's ever heard of somebody in heaven talking to somebody in hell. I I see what you're doing now. You're going to jump off of that to go tell me a story. And we, well, we do it with jokes all the time. So I, I tend to read it more that way. That makes a lot more sense to me, particularly because I don't recall anything else in the New Testament or any of the other teachings of Jesus that would corroborate that portion of it. And it seems mm-hmm. to me that would be kind of a big deal. For example, in First Thessalonians, when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians later and they say, hey, what happens when people die? Are they just miss out on? He said, no, no, no. Don't worry. They're asleep. They're going to be raised at the resurrection. That might have been a good time to say, oh, yeah, they're in Abraham's bosom. And by the way, they're probably chatting with all these people in hell. I'm being a little facetious, but you would expect to hear this at some point and you don't. So that's why I tend to read it as he's departed from reality into a story to make a point. And frankly, that is the definition of a parable. Right. The fact that it is an anomaly and it's a parable, I think, lend themselves to that explanation. If it were just an anomaly, but it wasn't a parable, it would be very hard to right. say, you know, well, should we take this as, a, you know, an explanation of the afterlife? The other thing that I think is a little bit difficult about it is if if you think off the top of your head, is there any other time where Jesus tells a story or tells a parable and there is something that is manifestly not true? It's almost like, you know, even if Jesus tells a story, is there a certain implication of the truthfulness of what he's saying? And by that, I mean, not the spiritual truth, but the frame that he selects, you know, the reality that he portrays it in. And uh, I didn't think about this beforehand or before we we're talking about it. I really can't think of any other place where Jesus tells a parable where there's something that we would point to and say, well, that that actually is not true. It's just there for the sake of the story. Do you have one? You know, I, I'm going to give you an opinion. I think I can think of two examples that I think are probably that way. One is the parable of the sower. I believe that Jesus uses hyperbole. And so that's a parable. I'm not I'm not saying that there was a farmer that did this and the birds ate it and that this happened, that this happened. He's telling that to give you a point. But they all understood it like, oh, yeah, we've seen seed fall on the stone and it doesn't sprout. And oh, yeah, we've seen plants grow up and wither. They It was very believable and it was realistic, but it wasn't real. But at the end, when he talks about a hundredfold, I think he's exaggerating because he's making mm-hmm. the point like you won't believe how much fruit you can bear. The second one is with the parable of the talents. I think that the numbers of, you know, the 10 times return and five times return, you know, and doubling your money in the market. I think that those may very well have been unrealistic statements, but to catch their idea and go, oh, I get your point. It's going to be like hugely faithful or hugely fruitful. So I may be wrong about that, Cole, but I think if you said factually, could you yield a hundred times? Well, 
that may not be factually true, but that's not what he's that's not the point he's trying to make. So I don't know if you would agree that might be an example of it, but I do think he says things that aren't factually true, but not because he's lying, because he's making a point. Well, I think when he's telling a story, like there doesn't have to be an actual person who was jumped and a good Samaritan who came by. I mean, that's it's a hypothetical mm-hmm. story, but it's within the real frame of what can happen. And like you're saying, it's maybe, realistic. Yes. maybe there's some hyperbolic elements. I mean, sometimes people nitpick at the parable of the mustard seed, you know, because I think this is actually in the way it's introduced, but they say, you know, the mustard seed is the smallest seed and it grows to be one of the largest plants. And people are like, well, it's not the smallest seed and it's not the biggest, but it's like, okay, this is the hyperbolic <laughs> contrast right. of a parable. And um, I think that's one category. I, I think probably the hardest thing about this parable in my mind is what is going on with this setup of the chasm between Hades or hell, which is active torment, which I do think Jesus describes other places in similar terms, and this Abraham's bosom. And, and, and what is going on with Abraham? How did Abraham get into this parable in the first place is another question that I think you've got to ask. I think this is the most difficult part, because if Jesus is really just framing up this story, and it's not true about the afterlife. I think it's a little bit of an anomaly. But uh, let me give you my shot yeah. at, at explaining this. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll take a slightly different version of it than you, because I think the whole thing is a story. I, I don't think this is an accurate description of heaven or hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I take you saying that this is really just an assertion that there are heaven and hell, which obviously right. I think is true. But I, I actually want to say that none of this is really what we should take the afterlife to be like, because I think what Jesus might be doing here is in the Second Temple era, that's the literature and the history leading up to the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of texts, and we talked about this last week in the book of Jude and in the book of Second Peter. They both cite or reference some of these texts that are not in the Bible, but that would have been very popular. And uh, there's a text called the Testament of Abraham. And in Mm -hmm. the story, it has Michael and the other angels, and they are ushering people up when they die. And there's a big wedding feast where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are presiding over the wedding Mm -hmm. feast. And so this phrase, Abraham's bosom, is like the reclining at a table that you see at the Last Supper, for example. John is reclined next to Jesus. So when when they're all kind of reclining on their side like that, his head is at Jesus' chest. And so Mm -hmm. he is in Abraham's, or he is at Jesus' bosom, like this Mm -hmm. person would be laying at the table in the seat of honor right next to Abraham. Uh, Or you could think of it as like a child on the lap of somebody else. This is the same kind of word. So he's taken up to the seat of the highest honor. And I wonder if what he's doing here is he's constructed a scene that people would have known from this tradition that isn't necessarily what it's like. Of course, there is going to be a wedding feast of the lamb. We're not told that Abraham's going to have the prime position at that. This was just the tradition there. It'd be be like if I used an illustration, uh, because that's what a parable really is, is a story illustration. It'd be like if I used an illustration and I said it in the world of Narnia or something like that. Uh, or I said, you know, I took I started out with the movie, you know, Saving Private Ryan or something, which is yeah. based on a historical event, but not. And then I used the characters. I'm wondering if that's what Jesus is doing here is he's using a very familiar frame for the afterlife. Abraham, 
the wedding banquet, the chasm in between. And then he's allowing these characters to do what you really won't be able to do in the afterlife, which is talk amongst each other past this chasm in order to illustrate a point that is true. And we wouldn't say that the narrative is false, but it's not a depiction of the afterlife. Yeah, I, I would jump on that because I agree with you completely. And I would jump on that and say that the description of hell or Hades in uh, verse uh, 23 is very, very close to First Enoch chapter 18. And Enoch is another one of those non-inspired books that were written before the time of Jesus, but that kind of popularly informed the Jewish imagination of what hell might be like. And that description is intended to tap into that understanding to then go make a point. So mm-hmm. I completely agree. I do see similarities here with some of the intertestamental literature. Right. So, you know, the, the parable probably the, that we can compare it to the closest is the one that you brought up earlier of, you know, the brothers who are all married to the same woman who she married to in the afterlife. And he says, look, you don't even understand what's going on here. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's not the way the afterlife is. I, I think here he's saying, you you don't know how God judges people clearly yeah. because you think this. And then he tells a story to illustrate that point that just so happens to do, to do with the afterlife. Um, right. So I would say this is not an accurate picture uh, of what will happen to us when we die. But I would say it is a very accurate picture in the sense that Jesus is telling this story in a way that they understood the categories and the setup to make a point that is true uh, about what God's going to do in the end times. Well, Cole, that begs the question then. I think we both agree that this is not a story to primarily communicate things about the afterlife. So what is this story about? So here's another, uh, I wouldn't call this one necessarily as much of a problem as as much as it is. You really have to dig a little bit to figure out what is the what is the main takeaway from this passage. And let me tee it up with a little bit of a uh, intriguing contradiction here. So he ends the parable by saying, Abraham says, you know what, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe if a person rises from the dead. This this poses an interesting apologetic issue. If that's the case, that Moses and the prophets are the grounds of belief or not belief, conviction or not conviction, which I think are the two parallel themes of this story, then should we be using the resurrection to people that are non-believers as an apologetic? Should we be talking about the resurrection or should we just be holding up Moses and the prophets or the scriptures uh, as the form of people coming to faith? Should we in fact do apologetics at all, you know, based on this parable would be a good question to ask. The, the second thing though, I would point out is um, when, when we get the takeaway from this parable, it's, Lazarus and the rich man had their fortunes reversed. Was it Lazarus's poverty that merited him the seat next to Abraham? Or was there something else? Is this really just a first will be last and the last will be first? So you should effectively enact this poverty gospel to go as low as you can, to go as high as you can. What does this teach us about the way that God is going to make all things right at the end? So those are two implications I would draw out to say the meaning or the takeaway might be a little bit more complicated than on first glance. 
I would agree with that. I think maybe I'll deal with the second one first. I do think you could read this and say the point of this parable is that riches are bad and rich people are getting their reward now. And that's that's what this parable is about. And poor people are are holy. And I do think there's a residue of that thinking in Christianity. I'm not saying so much today, but I do remember when I became a Christian, I kind of absorbed that. Uh, not overtly, but kind of poor people are holier than rich people. And I don't think that's for various reasons what this is teaching. I think if you just read this carefully, especially the first few verses, you realize that the rich man is condemned not because of his rich, but for his lack of compassion for the needy, which clearly shows a lack of repentance and a believing you know, in God. He's, he's not even following the law of Moses. I mean, forget the whole fact that he has no, has no compassion. He's commanded to do things for the poor. And this guy's literally, uh, I think Jesus you know, told the story this way. He's at his gate. It's not like you can say, I never saw the guy. I, mm-hmm. When I was driving in and out in my Mercedes, I had to go right past him. You know, so I, I think that it's his lack of compassion and his lack of obedience to God. Nowhere in here is the fact that he's wealthy condemned. It's simply that you didn't share. Right. Yeah, that's where I think the pinch point at the end of what Abraham says comes into full focus is Mm -hmm. he's not saying, hey, you know, your brothers are also rich and they have the prophets. It's right. If you can sit through and listen to the prophets at the temple, at the synagogue, wherever they were day after day with all the reminders in the Old Testament, do not forget the poor among you. God loves justice, and uh, don't forget the sojourner, and don't reap to the edge of your fields. If you can listen to that week after week after week after week and never come to your senses, don't think that a miracle is going to convince these people. Hardness of heart uh, set in that much is not going to be reversed by Lazarus coming back from the dead. And so one of the takeaways I would say is one of the central points of this parable is don't underestimate people's ability to not believe. Right. <laughs> don't, don't underestimate hardness of heart. And I would point to a couple other passages here, like in Matthew 28, where it says Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appeared to all these people and he calls everybody together and everybody worshiped him, but some doubted. Right. So you've got a group of people who have seen the risen Christ and they're like, I don't know if this is the real deal or not. Some doubt it. They saw Christ rise from the dead and they saw him appear. They saw him teaching. They saw him ascend and they didn't believe. Okay, if that's a category of people, that's a capacity of the human heart, then we should not underestimate anyone's ability to see God work, to see him move, to see miracles, and not believe. And so I think one of the takeaways that we should we should get from this is not, oh, you know, resurrection is unimportant if you have Moses and the prophets, but that the continual reminder and conviction of the word, if that isn't being listened to, don't expect a big show or a miracle right. or something kind of one-off with lots of glitz and glamour to it to convince people. It's not going to. The yeah. human heart can resist even the miraculous, even the resurrection from the dead. And the second text I would add to this, and this has an interesting implication for Lazarus in this text, is in John 11, 
Lazarus rises from the dead. So Jesus goes, he calls out, Lazarus rises from the dead. What is the Pharisees' response to Lazarus rising from the dead? Well, it's not, okay, let's worship Jesus. It's let's kill Lazarus. Let's (laughs) let's hide the evidence. Yeah. Is one of the funniest responses. So, I mean, at the at the <laughs> meeting among these people, you've got to think somebody was sitting there thinking, okay, so Jesus, so this guy gets sick, he dies, he's in the ground for four days. Jesus comes and with a word raises him from the dead. He's back, he's living again. And your plan is to kill him? Like, I mean, <laughs> that's one of the funniest things ever. I agree completely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like watching the parable of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and saying, you know what, we're going to lock this guy up and starve him to death. I mean, it just, it clearly doesn't match reality. This is kind of the condition of an unbelieving heart is, okay, they see Lazarus rise from the dead, and instead of worshiping Christ, they decide, oh, we're going to kill him again, uh, when Jesus could just as easily raise him again. Now, here's what I think is interesting. If this is... Lazarus, or as a real person, like if it's a real story, or even if it's not, why does Luke tell this story that Jesus tells, select this story about a Lazarus who maybe is coming back to tell people about what what the afterlife is like, and he doesn't relate Lazarus rising from the dead like John does in John chapter 11? That, that seems very odd to me. I mean, I think probably the answer is that there's not a connection here. It really is the Eleazar, right. every man, God has helped. Mm-hmm. I think that's why that's a really great reading. But it just seems like afterwards, you know, when you're Luke and you're putting all this together, you should say, by the way, there was a guy named Lazarus who did rise from the dead, yeah, right. uh, that Jesus did raise, you know. At least a dead. footnote, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a little bit odd in this yeah. story. Uh, but I, I also just- wonder... If, you know, the fact that we do have the four Gospels, we mm-hmm. can put together we Jesus put telling together. this That's right. parable and almost tongue-in-cheek saying, I'm going to do this, actually. And I will prove to you that if Lazarus comes back from the dead, this person's brothers are not going to believe. That's a very good point. Yeah. Which is an well, interesting you know, combination. It is. And, you know, uh, just to kind of bring this all the way around, I do think we're in agreement that the point of this parable is, and and honestly, I don't think Jesus is taunting the Pharisees. I don't think he's, uh, I, I really don't think he's condemning them. He's clearly not approving their attitude. But you could read this as an appeal that says, look, listen, listen to Moses and the prophets. This story is an example of what can happen if you fail to repent. And so I do think Jesus is being evangelical. He's to the Pharisees saying, I want to tell you where this road ends. So be compassionate, listen to the prophets, help the poor, soften your hearts. I really think it's an appeal on his part to say, here's what happens to a hard heart. Mm -hmm. I think the other theme I would add on that point is Never underestimate that it is the Word of God that does the work of conviction and uh, raising to new life. I mean, this is like the Ezekiel 37, Valley of the Dry Bones. He goes and he preaches God's Word, and the people come back from the dead. God's ordained plan, telling our testimonies is good, sharing the miraculous things God has done is good, but the bread and butter— of what we're supposed to be doing is preaching and teaching and reading the word of God. That's what we're really supposed to be doing. That should be the core 
of our evangelistic and discipleship strategy is Romans 10. How can they hear if they haven't heard? How can they hear at all if somebody hasn't been sent? And faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. God's plan is preaching and teaching his word. His word is what goes out and raises people and changes hearts and makes a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. And that's what, that's what this story is all about is if they've blocked out the thing that can really change them, bring them to repentance, then the miracle is not going to do it either. And um, so we've got to remember that we can try on the evangelistic side to jazz up anything we want, but the foundation of our appeal is not our great ideas about evangelizing people. It's the word of God. And if you look at the way Luke in Luke and Acts talks about this, one of the themes that you'll notice is in the early church, what Luke highlights in the book of Acts is Paul and Peter and others, they there are miracles and people are coming, you know, their eyes are being opened because of these miracles. But what they're really doing and the way the, the way that Acts end, I think, is instructive. Paul, from the very beginning of his conversion, is proving to the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Right. Jesus, when he rises from the dead and he's on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, he starts with Moses and the prophets, and he explains to them all the texts concerning him, or all things concerning him in the Hebrew scriptures. At the end of Acts, Paul is teaching, and he is contesting with the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ without hindrance. That's the way it ends. And so for Luke, this theme, you know, taken from Jesus' teaching and from Paul's ministry and Peter's ministry, runs through both of these books. It starts with what God has said, bringing people to see that what God has said is true, and that's how they trust in Christ. And so I think part of the point of this parable is that we would never think that uh, our methods or the things that we contrive, you know, as Christians— are the thing that can do the work of God. It really is, at base, the Word of God that can do the work of God. Well, Cole, I think you may have just introduced our next hard question. If indeed there are people whose hearts are hardened, and then you have to ask the question, did they harden their hearts, or did God harden their hearts? Which reminds me of Romans chapter 9, and maybe that's where we should go next. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.